Well, we'll continue uh, today in, in Luke chapter 11. We, we, uh, we got to a large chunk, and there was no way to get through it in, in uh, one Sunday last week. So uh, this will be part two, and, and the sign behind me still applies, actually, at, as, um, as I've mentioned before, that could, that's applicable all the time regardless of where you are in scripture or in life, uh, it is one or the other. But uh, what we're finding uh, here in Luke chapter 11 is, is Jesus laying down the law uh, literally to, to a group of, of folks that have invited him to dinner uh, with evil intent. But uh, these are scribes and Pharisees and what uh, we saw as they reclined at the table, uh, the first to get it was uh, a Pharisee who apparently was adjacent to Jesus as they're they're reclining. If you go to Jerusalem, by the way, there's a there's a little um, I don't know what to call it. It's a uh, you can you can can eat a meal the way Jesus and the disciples would have eaten a meal. So you're reclined. You're you're I put it this way, I'd be thinner if I, if I <laughs> went through this process all the time. But, uh, but apparently, and it, and it comes to play in the gospel several times as, as uh, some of his uh, beloved disciples can lean on him. Uh, the reason that can happen is they're reclining at, at these things. So they're in, he's in a Pharisee's house at dinner. And what we saw was he immediately just lets them have it. Uh, there are seven uh, criticisms, severe criticisms that Jesus has of this group. Uh, six of them have the word woe in the English translations of the Bible. The seventh one uh, we saw uh, came before that. It was sort of the lead-in uh, criticism. And last week we got through the first three still addressed to the Pharisees is number four, uh, which is uh, when I die spiritually on the inside and invite others to follow me into my uh, lack of, of faith. Uh, this is verse 44 of Luke 11, and it reads this, Woe to you, for you are like unmarked graves, and people walk over them without knowing it. Uh, in the Pharisaical world, that would make you unclean. So... The entire culture that was that was being driven by the Pharisees and the scribes and the the people who who made so much more of the law uh, than Scripture does, uh, you were always on pins and needles. But um, what Jesus tells the Pharisees is, "You Pharisees are like unmarked graves. Uh, people walk over you and they become unclean. Why? Because you are such." hypocrites uh, that you defile the very following that you have. Uh, but as, as we see, the important part of all of these woes in this, uh, this chapter, and, it, and it's uh, a considerable part of the chapter, uh, is that we are also tend to be guilty of these things. These are not just uh, rocks that Jesus is throwing at these Pharisees and scribes and so forth. Uh, we can take other people down with us also. 
Uh, for instance, if we imagine that we're good people, uh, but and therefore don't need Jesus, and there are a lot of folks that I meet that feel this way. Uh, I don't know how many times I'll be talking to somebody and I'll, and I'll say, are you a Christian? Well, of course I'm a Christian. Uh, well, what would make you a Christian? Well, because I'm a pretty decent person. Uh, that's the wrong answer. That is an invalid answer. It, it may be helpful along with the right answer, but uh, the problem is that doesn't get the job done and people like that will tend to bring others on. Uh, I keep coming back to Romans chapter one, verses 18 to 32. That's the, that's the second half of that entire chapter uh, that begins with people suppressing the truth. And by the time you get to the bottom, by the time you get to verse 32 of Romans chapter one, you're with, they're trying to get friends up to, to join their misery. Uh, that also is a very common thing to run into with this kind of person. They're, they're made uneasy if someone comes in and wants to talk about the Bible, wants to, wants to tell them what Christianity really means, and therefore they tend to recruit others and convince them, yeah, you're okay, you don't need, you don't need church, you don't need the Bible, you don't need all that, uh, that religion. Uh, just, uh, you're a pretty good person, all, all things will be well. Uh, well, that's what Jesus is telling this, this Pharisee. Uh, if we seek acceptance uh, so deeply that we refuse to risk a friendship by telling someone about Jesus would be another example of this. Uh, the Bible, of course, tells us very clearly that we're all unrighteous people and that the only salvation can be found in Jesus. Therefore, we need to keep our hearts we need to humble ourselves, we need to embrace our Savior, and we need to tell others about that. Uh, the irony, of course, is this, uh, Jesus is telling this to the Pharisees, this is the top of the line in the Jewish religious pecking order. Uh, the people, as we saw last week, who, who sit in specially uh, defined places in synagogues and they're, they're considered uh, to be the, the, uh, the leaders of, of the church there, uh, but it is, uh, Ironic that these very Pharisees who are so concerned about their externals that they are themselves the source of spiritual contamination. That is happening so often in the church today. We mentioned this last week and I'll allude to it again. The fact that, uh, that when I see churches these days, more and more what I'm seeing is churches that are getting away from traditionalism. Uh, churches that are getting away from the old hymns. We've got 500 years. We've got actually much more than that, but especially 500 years of, of magnificent, deep, theological, uh, informative, helpful hymnody, and churches don't want to do that. They want these, these quick little ditties that, that uh, dance along the surface like a water bug. Uh, some of them have reasonable content, if you want to remain surface oriented and therefore incapable of dealing with issues when they come into your life, issues that are very serious and, and need a little more understanding than surface. Uh, so that's the problem that Jesus is saying that here's what you Pharisees are doing. He's telling them they're unclean, deceptive, diseased, defiling, infecting, and polluting. This is a guest who's come to dinner. <laughs> so you need to keep that in mind that, that we're going to see where all that uh, goes. Uh, 
Kent Hughes had an interesting quote on this uh, that is very convicting. He said, quote, we leave our fingerprints on the souls of those we meet, either for Christ or opposing Christ. That's, that's why this, uh, uh, this sign behind me, we're, we're going to lead everybody that, that, um, that our souls meet in one way or another. Uh, so that's, that's uh, where Jesus was at that one. When we get to verse 45, we get a new person entering the arena. Verse 45 says, one of the lawyers answered him, teacher, in saying these things, you insult us also. Uh, well, the, by lawyer, what he's talking about there are, are the scribes, the people that um, were the legalists. They were the codifiers. Uh, they were the folks that, that uh, amplified the law and, and uh, took great uh, pride in doing so. Uh, so the, the scribe comes over to Jesus and says, hey, yeah, uh, that's us too. You, you're talking to that Pharisee over there, but when you say that to him, you're saying that to me. So this scribe comes in and uh, does a great job of leading with his chin. Uh, and Jesus launches into three more, the final woes, three, three more woes against now the scribes and the lawyers. Uh, so the first one with these people in mind, we saw verse 45 where the, the lawyer leans over and said, hey, that's, that's us too. Here's how Jesus responds in verse 46. He said, woe to you lawyers also, for you load people with burdens hard to bear and you yourselves do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. Uh, so Jesus, uh, to, these, uh, to these, not only the Pharisees, but now uh, the folks who are writing, codifying the law, the Pharisees basically were the enforcers of it, the, the scribes and the lawyers uh, codifier. One of the uh, commentaries I looked at said, imagine if you had a Bible written by the IRS. Uh, those of you who, who uh, I, I don't know the, the validity is probably understating it, but I've heard that, that the IRS code is something like 25,000 pages long or something. Uh, the Bible would therefore be hundreds of thousands of pages uh, if you let these kind of folks loose. And that's precisely what they were doing. Uh, and those who were entrusted with the law with such extra weight that it became an unbearable burden, they perverted the word of God uh, today, again, we've seminary professors, uh, church teachers, preachers, anywhere and anybody that's going to be put in a position to open the word uh, or to refute the word, frankly, I'm, I'm running more and more into that where, where people want to be extra biblical. They, they'll say, yeah, that, yeah, that's an old boy. I, I, I know what that says. But here's what we really need to be thinking about. And basically what they're doing is rewriting it. Uh, they're creating more uh, scripture that they want to give equal uh, underscoring, equal access to. We saw last week, uh, if you remember that, that little paragraph, well, it was a long paragraph that simply dictated how you wash your hands. And it was probably uh, 15 lines long about uh, how you hold them and which, which palm up, palm down, water gets above the wrist, water gets below the wrist. That's, that's the scribes, that's the lawyers at work here. Uh, 
And again, we do the whole thing ourselves. Anytime we complicate the access to God through his word, we are acting scribally. Uh, we're making it harder than it needs to be. Uh, anytime we make the Bible appear irrelevant, anytime we make it say what it doesn't, anytime we remain silent about what it does say, hiding it under a bushel, we're gonna hear a sermon about that. Um, it's coming from Mark uh, in a little while. So examples of complicating the word, uh, sometimes uh, I've, I had uh, made note of church calendars um, over the years, uh, because Protestantism came out of Catholicism in the sense that with Luther and Calvin and so forth, uh, those, those men began to see that the Roman Catholic Church had done exactly what we're talking about here with the scribes and the, and, uh, the lawyers, as well as the Pharisees, building in extra to the scriptures that made it much more difficult and problematic uh, to, to be a Christian, a, a simple Christian. Uh, so this kind of thing can happen and church calendars are one way that we can, uh, can sort of continue tradition that is uh, interesting and has, uh, it, it, it's not bad in itself. I'm, I'm thinking specifically of Lent, um, Advent, uh, you, you go through the whole church calendar, which, which came to us, uh, not so much from scripture, but uh, again, I'm not opposed to, to those kinds of things as long as no credence is put to them in terms of do this or this bad thing will happen. Once you start doing that, then you have created extra biblical content that will take people away from where they need to be. Um, a couple of corrective passages here. Uh, one from the book of Philippians, very, very familiar passage, but oh, so important to remember. Philippians chapter two, uh, beginning in um, verse five, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That is a crystal clear presentation of gospel truth. And if the content of that passage is not in the way that you speak to people when you're telling them about Christ, telling them about the Lord, telling them what the content of scripture is all about, AKA Jesus himself, uh, then something is going to be missing. Uh, so it's not just uh, so much sins of commission uh, this is uh, problematic. This, this woe is problematic also with sins of omission. Uh, I can weigh people down by my legalism. I can also uh, fail to get them up where they need to be. Uh, you remember the uh, Romans 14 passage, perhaps. When you, when you get to Romans 14, 
uh, really 14 and into 15, you, you get this uh, teaching from Paul about the weaker brother, about not trying to overwhelm somebody. Don't Precisely what the Pharisees and the scribes were doing is what uh, Paul enjoins the believer not to do. Don't put stumbling blocks, especially if you have either a, a new believer uh, or somebody that uh, perhaps has been laboring in a church, but it wasn't the church that it needed to be. And therefore they not only have misconceptions, but they don't have um, the solid foundation they need. That's not the person you wanna go in and uh, give them recitations on uh, John Calvin's perspective on infralapsarianism. Uh, you wanna walk them to Jesus, always back to Jesus, back again and again, and building them uh, in their faithfulness along the way. Now that's going to get us to uh, the next woe, which is in verses 47 to 51. Woe is me when I murderously rebel against God's word. Verse 47 says, woe to you, for you build the tombs of the prophets whom your fathers killed. So you are witnesses and you consent to the deeds of your fathers, for they killed them and you build their tombs. Therefore also the wisdom of God said, I will send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill and persecute, so that the blood of all the prophets shed from the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation, from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who perished between the altar and the sanctuary. Yes, I tell you it will be required of this generation that's what was going on here, among other things. And again, if you go to Jerusalem today, it's fascinating uh, surroundings around the so-called old city where the Temple Mount uh, is, was, however you wish to say. Now it's the Muslim mosque, but it's still the Temple Mount. And uh, what you see dotting this necropolis, a, a a cemetery, if you will, around this holy place, um, holy in quotes. Uh, and many of them are purported to be tombs of the prophets, which all of the archaeologists and the Bible scholars and so forth say they are not. Uh, we actually know where very few of the prophets are, are, were actually buried, but uh, but they will build these tombs, and they, they did that in order, again, to build up uh, the sense that they, the Pharisees and the scribes, were standing on traditions of centuries upon centuries of biblical truth when they weren't. Uh, the whole thing was, was uh, false. And Jesus is telling the scribes in particular, he says, you build the tombs for the prophets that your fathers killed. He mentions, he go, interestingly, he goes all the way back to Abel. He starts with Abel. Why would he start with Abel as a prophet? We don't normally think about uh, Abel as a prophet. Well, it was because Abel was the one who understood that there needed to be a blood sacrifice. Uh, so when, when Abel is, is of course, uh, killed by his brother, uh, it's Abel that was, uh, that was pleasing in the sight of God because he understood the message of the prophet that there's, that there's going to be a blood sacrifice required. So Abel, long before there is an Israel, long before there is uh, the, the tabernacle and the whole Moses with all of, of the uh, book of Leviticus and the priesthood and, 
the sacrificial system that gets uh, institutionalized at, at that point in scripture. Uh, this man, Abel, is considered by Jesus to be a prophet. And Jesus tells him, you, you killed Abel, you, you killed all these folks. And you make sure that they remain dead. Jesus is saying, you're witnesses to this murder. You consent to this murder. You are therefore word killers. Uh, you, what were the prophet's words? They were simply go to Jesus and go to the servant. They didn't know the word Jesus. It, it's so, so wonderful to go through the book of Isaiah where you've got the servant songs, uh, where Isaiah is painting the picture of, of Jesus, especially clear when you get to uh, chapters 52 and 53, uh, where you've got the suffering servant and uh, passages that we love to read at Christmas and, and Easter and at other times, always wonderful to read those passages. But that's what uh, Jesus is saying. Uh, these prophets were telling you about me and you kill them. He's in parenthesis, I'm sure he's thinking, and you're going to kill me too. But uh, at any rate, the blood of all the prophets will be charged against this generation, he says. And why would he really, really come, come down hard on these particular individuals? Because these men already had all of the prophets. These men had the, the written testimony from what we call Old Testament prophets. They had John the Baptist introducing the Messiah. They had the Messiah them, themselves. In fact, he's reclining in the very room with them and they're all going to ignore, not just ignore that. Uh, they're going to do the following things. They're going to arrest Jesus in the middle of the night. They're going to pay informants to help them get a guilty plea. They're going to threaten his disciples. They're going to bring Jesus up on false charges. They're going to drag him before the Roman authorities. They're going to incite the crowds against him. And they're going to demand the death penalty. And they're going to see to it that they get it. So that's, that's the vileness of the Pharisees and the scribes that Jesus is speaking with. And Jesus knows every bit of this. And he is accusing them accordingly. Uh, one verse uh, late in Matthew is so profoundly uh, chilling. Uh, Matthew 27, 25. I'll start with verse 24. Pilate, uh, in verse 24, when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, he took water and washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I'm innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. And verse 25 says this, and all the people answered, his blood be on us and on our children. Uh, I have often thought of that verse when you look at the history of the Jewish people, uh, not just the Holocaust, but uh, the pogroms, the, the ghettos, all of those words came into, came into the uh, English language as words describing uh, persecution of Jews. And there, there's a connection to all of that. I'm not saying that, that that is the sum total of it, but it nonetheless has reverberated for 2,000 years through human history and continues to today in our own very anti-Semitic culture uh, that we live in. Um, so this is, these, it's, it's incredible. Jesus is, is here at the epitome, in one sense, of all of human history, 
and that finally the Messiah has come and he's with the very people uh, that would be most representative of Satan and Satan's desire uh, to be rid of, of the Messiah. But again, here is the maybe even more chilling part. That same word-killing tendency can reside in our own hearts today. If we honor the prophets, we will live by the word they brought. Hosea, for instance, if you read Hosea, uh, you will love God and love to worship God. If you read Amos, you will let justice roll down. There, there's a wonderful book with that title, probably several, but the one I'm familiar with, a man named John Perkins, uh, wonderful, wonderful book. If you want to read what the book of Amos is, is saying. Uh, if you familiar with Micah, you will do justice. You will love kindness. You will walk humbly before God. Habakkuk, you will live by faith. Ezekiel, you will repent of your sin and return to God. John the Baptist, repent of your sin and believe in Jesus as Messiah. If you're listening to the apostles, lay their foundation as the church's foundation, not anybody else's, not any other thing. If you listen to Paul, you'll believe, teach, preach, and live that Jesus Christ and him crucified is the centerpiece of the world. Believe in Jesus himself, come to me. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. How many times, um, every Sunday we go through it, another one of the Ten Commandments, and it's a given that obviously no one has kept such a commandment. And I would say it's equally obvious that none of us uh, are doing all of these kinds of things. And here Jesus is speaking with Pharisees and scribes, and he's, he's accusing them of doing every bit of this, of, of not understanding the prophets and indeed of drawing others away from them. So he finally concludes here with uh, verses 52 to 54. This is the final, this is the seventh woe that Jesus is going to, to speak, still talking to scribes. And essentially this woe is, uh, woe to me when I teach falsely and block others from God. Verses 52 to 54. Woe to you lawyers, for you have taken away the key of knowledge. You did not enter yourselves and you hindered those who were entering. As he went away from there, the scribes and the Pharisees began to press him hard and to provoke him to speak about many things, lying in wait for him to catch him in something he might say. Uh, so the hearts of these men come out very clearly by the time you get uh, to the end of it. But this particular woe, uh, teaching falsely and, and blocking others from God, uh, and he says, in particular, you take away the key of knowledge. What's he talking about there? He's talking about himself. Uh, what is the central key of all of Christianity? It's Jesus. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by him. And he says to the Pharisees and, and especially to the scribes and lawyers, you did not enter yourselves. You didn't, you don't, I, here I am in your midst and you're, you're having me around this dinner table so you can find a way to, to bring me up on charges. Uh, you don't know, you don't care about me. You don't see me as a Messiah, certainly, and uh, you want to be rid of me because I am a threat uh, to you and your, and your fiefdom. Uh, so he tells them, you didn't enter using the key yourself. You, didn't, you don't 
and much worse, you block others from entering who wanted to go in. Uh, what, what an incredible indictment. And there are, again, the, the chilling part is we can do the same thing and we can do it very easily uh, without perhaps being, being aware uh, of doing it. But uh, when we fail to be clear and simple about telling others of Jesus, a lot of reasons to do that. It's always, uh, we assume that we're going to be marginalized, that if we begin to, to act evangelistically and bring up uh, Jesus pointedly, that people might think less of us or they may think we're strange or, or we will be ostracized from their circle and we will withhold uh, the evidence. We're, we're doing exactly what he is accusing these scribes of doing. We're not, we're not ourselves presenting uh, Jesus. We're not among this group, frankly, with a good enough intention uh, to have been there by way of the right key. We've come in through the side door. Uh, when we add words to faith, uh, words that could take us toward works righteousness, words that could take us uh, toward demeaning someone else's faith, uh, questioning their faith. So many subtle, subtle ways that Satan is going to, to use a Christian uh, in a way that, that uh, we really uh, should know better, but, uh, but we cave into. Uh, when we actively seek control in the church and its business, but fail to use that through scripture and through Christ again. Um, trying not to step on toes is hard in this, uh, in this description, but, uh, but at any rate, uh, the functioning of churches, it, it is just so what the reform faith uh, had got right. Now they, you know, there's, there's no perfect church, there's no perfect denomination, uh, there's no perfect faith or, or any of that kind of thing outside of Jesus. But I will say the Reformed faith, the Presbyterianism, biblically understood, not all Presbyterianism, but biblically understood, meaning standing on the scriptures and the scriptures alone gets a lot of things right. I'm sure we're messing up and we'll find out about that later. Uh, but uh, it, it, if, if you let this book be the standard for everything that goes on in a church and between yourself and another individual, you are on the right path. This, uh, this book has much to say and we will, we will not say it all properly uh, or winsomely perhaps or, or even uh, pointedly when it needed to be pointed. Uh, but at any rate, any way you have of, of adding words or works to faith is going to be following in the footsteps of the Pharisees and the scribes. Uh, so it's a, very, very important to, to get these things right. Here's another way. When we make the Bible a textbook and not a message of salvation, this is something uh, that seminarians, um, I know I've, I've had to have mentioned this before, uh, but uh, when I went uh, off to Westminster, you, you start in, uh, well, I won't bore you with all of that, but it's, it's, it's an intensive, intensive academic uh, endeavor that, that has languages that you, you start with languages and by the time you get to second year at Westminster, I don't, every seminary functions a little bit differently on this, but you're not allowed an English Bible anymore. It's assumed that you've got Hebrew and Greek down. Um, 
that was a big assumption in my case. I don't know what everybody else was doing. Uh, but I remember distinctly an Old Testament uh, quiz on, on some passage out of Exodus. And all I could write on my paper, I said, okay, we've got Moses and a mountain. I don't know what that verb is. I don't know if Moses sees a mountain. I don't know if he's falling off a mountain. I, don't, I was tired and exasperated acting foolishly in my uh, flippant remarks about this. Uh, but nonetheless, you, you keep progressing through this notion. Uh, you start with the practical side of things in little preaching classes. And you've never preached a sermon. I speak only for myself. I've never preached a sermon before. Didn't have a clue um, what it was all about and, and how to go about doing it. And in your first sermon classes, everybody is abutting Billy Graham. Your classmates are sitting there. And I, I so remember my first, it, oh, it was so bad. <laughs> and I knew it was bad, but and I, I got, um, the professor comes up and says to the class, what'd you think? And they just start ripping me from limb to limb. These were the biggest Pharisees I'd ever seen in, in my entire life. Uh, one guy in particular, I had, I had a, the Bible in a cover I know some of you have covers on your Bibles. He said, how do I know you were reading from the Bible? I said, well, you could have been following along with me, maybe. But at any rate, I, I mean, Petty Little just destroyed the, the poor person. By the time you're graduating and you've all been ripped apart, then you end with a terrible sermon and everybody's saying, "I, you know, I haven't heard, that's better than John Calvin. <laughs> so everybody then gets on board and you start going through it. But the point is, seminary is a strange, biblically, and everybody at every good seminary knows this, seminarians, you ought to be trained for the ministry in churches. The problem is you can't train people in churches because you don't have a full faculty uh, qualified in, in every church any church, really. Uh, so you've got to have this other way. So you send them off to this thing called a seminary and they're, they're in this little academic cocoon and it tends to make you what Jesus is talking about here. Uh, when you turn the Bible into a textbook, uh, it became obvious quickly that the PhD uh, dissertations that are turned into books are never worth getting because... They're just so minute uh, that, that they're no good to anybody. And you've got to break people of that. You, you've got to, uh, now a good seminary uh, that continues to put Jesus uh, first and foremost and has, has uh, recruited the right kind of, of seminarian to begin with uh, is looking on the heart. Uh, the head, yeah, great, but I can give you a library full of books and you can, you can read them and, and learn most of the knowledge. What's, what's, what Jesus is saying to these people is, yes, you have all gone through synagogue school and you're, you know so much, and that is precisely why you are using all of this to destroy people's souls with it. It's a very, very serious charge. And again, we, we all can do this. Uh, when we make uh, the Bible more of a textbook than a message of salvation. It's a balance and it's a difficult balance. And every one of the 66 books needs to be confronted because that balance is going to need to be tweaked 
to uh, balance a gospel book is going to be different from balancing an epistle, different from balancing one of the prophets, different from an historical narrative, so forth and so on. Uh, so he goes on, Jesus says, when we, especially men, fail to lead in the church and in our families. Um, I'd love to go back to Genesis 3 and, and unpack when Jesus, or when God comes to Adam and Eve and they have sinned, and he, he says, okay, to Eve, he says, here's your punishment. And to Adam, he says, here's your punishment. Those words completely correlate with everything that men and women have been tending toward negatively uh, and, it, and still tend toward them negatively today. And one of them is that men will tend to give up the authority they're supposed to seize and, and use within their families and their churches. Uh, so again, so much could be said here. Here's a, here's a final seminary professors who undermine belief in the authority of the Bible, the miracles, the deity of Christ, the virgin birth. Uh, J. Gresham Machen, famous for his book entitled The Virgin Birth, uh, had to, here's a seminary, a, a Princeton seminary professor. Princeton starts in 1812 for about almost exactly 100 years. It was the best seminary, in my humble opinion, that has ever existed on the face of the planet. If you read anything that came out of Princeton Seminary from 1812 to 1912, you've got very, very excellent material on your hand. The Charles Hodges of the world, B.B. Um, uh, Warfield, Machen was a professor at Princeton. Machen has to leave Princeton and then write the virgin birth of Christ because Princeton Seminary no longer believed in the virgin birth of Christ and no longer taught it and doesn't teach it today. Uh, these, these are just, uh, again, seminaries. And the, the, the average person, and I mentioned last week, I was one of them, who sits in a pew, doesn't understand the import of the seminary system of any culture. That's the group that's going to send you your pastor. Now, that's the group that's either going to send you male or female. That's the group that's going to send you somebody who knows the Bible or who wants to be a Pharisee or a scribe or something much, much worse than that. And uh, we really need to, to take account of the seminaries and, uh, and vet them and support the good ones and don't support the bad ones. I remember sitting there at Westminster, uh, I think it was 1986 or something, and the Pew Foundation, which J, um, J. Howard Pugh was a wonderful, solid Christian man by the time he died. Uh, he became, uh, it's, it's located in Philadelphia, and he became a, a reformed Presbyterian uh, before, slightly before he died. And he left in his will strict instructions, Christian instructions about how he wanted the Pew Foundation to operate. The Pew Foundation today operates as far away from those things as you could possibly gather. But they do do a lot of surveys and they do them well. And they did a survey in 1986 that asked one question, the whole survey, one question, is the Bible the inerrant and fallible word of God? And they sent that question to the presidents of 380 some odd seminaries in America. And 82% of those people who were presidents of seminaries said, no, the Bible is not the inerrant and fallible word of God. Now that was 40 years ago now. Uh, you can imagine, they haven't gotten better. So we need to understand this, uh, the seminary system better than we do and, and help the ones that need help. Uh, and don't 
don't help the ones that don't. So uh, the conclusion, you can imagine by this point, the ambiance around this table, uh, these scribes and Pharisees, I don't even know if they've gotten uh, to, the, to the main meal. I, I, don't, even, I don't know what, what was going on. I can't even imagine it, but they're not happy. Uh, they're very distressed about everything that Jesus has told them. And that's why in verses 53 and 54, uh, we'd have to go into the Greek a little bit for you to understand uh, a little bit. And I don't want to turn it into a textbook, but I can tell you that the Greek words of verses 53 and 54 are all uniquely found in hunting environments. What these scribes and Pharisees are saying Verse 53, as he went away from there, the scribes and Pharisees began to press him hard and to provoke him to speak about many things, lying in wait for him to catch him in something he might say. From this point on in Luke, the gloves are off. These men want to kill Jesus, period. And they're not going to stop until they accomplish that. And it, uh, it's, it's ruthless. It is very, very uh, hard, frankly, to read uh, those, those verses and what the vileness uh, behind them, and um, I just I, I want to end <clears throat> with one little caveat from something that I have have seen over the years. I know a lot of of good solid Christian people who like to read the Bible because it makes them feel good, and that is an absolutely valid experience. Whenever a Christian opens the Word of God, it is it, it it's a good feeling. But you need more than that. You need to study this book. You need to know this book, not to turn it into a textbook, but there are many, many issues in this book uh, that, that you need a systematic theological understanding behind. When you get into certain situations in life that a simple little warm and fuzzy feeling is not going to help you with, you need to know what this book actually says. And again, that's why this church is so blessed uh, with, with people like Rick, Jeff, and Brendan who, who undo this book and give it to us uh, with crystal clarity. But we need that and, and don't ever stop reading and studying. Don't go to those men, get them to tell you what, a, what the best commentaries are on certain books and study them and begin to understand what this book is saying. Not, not that it's just a, a token a warm, uh, nice thing to read in the Psalter every now and then. Sometimes that's exactly what we need, but at other times we're going to need to have understood it. When providence frowns on you and me, we're gonna need deep, in-depth biblical knowledge and that uh, don't ever stop, don't ever stop seeking that. Let's pray. Uh, Father, we, we see these, uh, these Pharisees, scribes, these, these men who in their own cultures were looked upon as gods, and yet they were Satanists. They were taking people and destroying their souls by keeping the key away from them, by keeping the Savior who was walking in their midst, and they were vilifying the Savior. Father, this is happening in the 21st century as well. Uh, help us, Father, to pray uh, 
for our own church. Help us to pray for all churches. Help us to study the scripture together. Help us never, ever to grow weary of leaning on one another and loving one another and leading one another deeper into the real content and texture and truth of the Old Testament and the New Testament, which page after page from beginning of Genesis to end of Revelation leads us to Jesus Christ as the only truth, the only way to certain life with the Father, Son, Holy Spirit in heaven. Father, make us those kinds of earnest, humble believers. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.